Welcome to the Anxiety Slayer series. Our mission is to assist you with creating more peace and tranquility in your life through anxiety release exercises and supportive tools created to slay your anxiety. Good afternoon. I'm Shan Vanderleek with AnxietySlayer.com. Welcome to a brand new Anxiety Slayer interview. This week, it is my pleasure and honor to introduce you to Michelle Rosenthal. Michelle teaches audiences how to create change they choose in order to conquer the past and create the future. Host of the radio program Changing Direction, she is also the founder of HealMyPTSD.com. Her book, Before the World Intruded, Conquering the Past and Creating the Future, has been nominated for multiple awards. Her forthcoming book, Your Life After Trauma, Powerful Practices to Reclaim Your Identity will be available from W.W. Norton in 2014. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me here today and for sharing your story and your book and some questions that I'm going to be asking you with the Anxiety Slayer listeners. I'm so grateful to have read Before the World Intruded. What a great book. And I look forward to your forthcoming book. And would love for you to just give our listeners a little backstory about how we're coming together today in this interview. Oh, Sam, first, thank you so much, not only for having me, but for the incredible work that you do. I think anxiety is such an enormous and important topic, and we, those of us who experience it can feel so alone and isolated and a little bit crazy, and it's, it makes it so much easier to deal with, I think, when we all come together as a community, so thank you. And I think we, you and I found each other because we reached out to you because we wanted to extend our hand and say, come on, let's work on this together, because I think raising awareness and educating all of us about what is anxiety, how does it show up, how does it impact a life, and most importantly, how do we overcome it? Is, is something that, you know, it's, it's a, a simple idea, but I don't always feel like it gets done in a way that's really helpful and supportive. And my whole focus, and I know yours too, is coming at this from an empowered kind of perspective. And, and that's also one of the reasons I was so excited to be able to connect with you, because I think, you know, I'm always saying we don't heal in isolation, we heal in community. But then it has to be the right community, and you have definitely got the right perspective and the right community to sort of all come together and say, what are we going to do about this? How do we make personal change, and, and how do we move forward from here? Oh, right on, and it is about community. There's just so much that we can do to support one another with our transparency, being authentic, sharing our stories, as scary as they might sometimes be. And I know that when we set up this interview, I knew a very little bit about you. And then I had the pleasure of reading Before the World Intruded and learned a lot more. And your story just blew my heart wide open. And I would love for you to share with our listeners the cause of your post-traumatic stress and a little bit about post-traumatic stress, because we haven't talked about that at all with our listeners, and, and I know that it's affecting a lot of them. So if you could just kind of lead the way for us and, and tell us your story, and, and we'll go from there. Absolutely. 
Well, let's start the story and then I'll get into really what is post-traumatic stress. And you're so right. There are millions of people in every moment affected by it. And you'll be surprised maybe when I tell you some of the causes, because we think so much post-traumatic stress disorder, you have to have been in military combat. And the fact is that that's one of the many ways people end up with PTSD. So let's start, let's go back to 1981. I was a 13-year-old kid, fantastic family, as you saw in Before the World Intruded. My 13th summer was a ton of fun. It was full of a wonderful family vacation, a younger brother that I adore, parents who are really loving and caring and supportive and stable. And at the end of that summer, I ended up with a routine bladder infection, and I went to the doctor, and my doctor was away. It was August, so he was on vacation, and the covering doctor diagnosed the bladder infection and without reading my medical chart, prescribed an antibiotic. And I highlight the fact that he didn't read because if he had, he would have seen that there were indications that that could be a disastrous antibiotic for me. But nobody had shared that with my family or me. It was just a note in the chart. And since he didn't read the chart, the doctor prescribed it. And in fact, within a few days, I was becoming overwhelmed and victimized by this horrific allergic reaction called toxic epidermal necrolysis syndrome starts out as a rash, turns into you know, in worst case scenario, which I experienced, it covers your whole body, not with a rash, but with enormous blisters uh. because the medication, they, they theorize that the medication can't be metabolized by your body, so it sends it out through the skin. So I ended up as a full body burn victim, having never been in a fire. Uh. And in the hospital, because what I experienced is so rare, only one in two million people ever have it, and less than that to the degree that I did, none of the doctors knew what to do with me. So it was sort of, you know, fly by the seat of your pants and everybody guessing. And my parents, as you saw and Before the World Intruded, were fantastic and amazing in terms of their creativity and their support for me. They turned my quarantined hospital room into a burn victim unit. And we just wrote it out. But the problem was, while I came out of the hospital to make a full recovery, physically, emotionally, I never bounced back. And if you think back to yourself, Shan, at 13, what kind of coping skills did you have for major, major trauma? None. None, right? Because as kids, nobody teaches us that. Right, <laughs> right. You learn as you go along. And you know, Shan, also at that age, at 13... That's just the beginning of the whole identity development that we experience all the way up until 18, and that's when you sort of solidify who you are. So at 13, I really had nothing to hold on to to say, this is who I am, and I can depend on this. Mm. I came out of the hospital and said, this is who I am, what I've just been through. <laughs> and that, is, that was a major problem for me, and I think that's a problem that we all have coming through trauma, big or small trauma, we have a tendency to define ourselves by what we've lived through or experienced. And if those are negative things, the repercussion is anxiety because then we live in fear, we live as less than, we live as damaged. And the more we live like that, the more that perpetuates itself. So the anxiety builds and builds. And for me, in 1981, nobody was looking at civilian medical issues for kids 
as possible post-traumatic stress disorder precursors. Because at that time, post-traumatic stress disorder was really only being applied to the military. It was coming directly out of the Vietnam veteran support groups. And so when I started showing up with symptoms, everybody just told my parents, well, she's a teenager, she's difficult, you know, kids bounce back. So Uh nobody really noticed the signs, and there wasn't enough education, and there was no internet, so it wasn't like my mom, who was, you know, amazing at at knowing this is not going to go well for her psychologically. There was no Google for my mom to put in, you know, hospital trauma, nightmares, anxiety, it would pop up. So when I started exhibiting symptoms of PTSD, and they, they fall into three categories, and PTSD is technically an anxiety disorder, so it's grouped under that um, category. But with PTSD, you have three different categories of symptoms, re-experiencing, arousal, and avoidance. So with re-experiencing, I can't stop thinking about it. And if you've ever had uh-huh. something bad happen to you and you just have to keep going over and over and over it. So intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, nightmares, that kind of stuff. Re-experiencing all the time, you know, not every second, but consistently. Sure, sure. And then arousal, the survival mode gets switched on and sort of doesn't ever switch off. So your amygdala, you know, your part of your brain, your reptilian brain that's very keyed into sensing threat becomes Uh hypersensitive. And it's always in every second making you feel like something awful is going to happen to me. I better be really prepared. So we get hyper aroused, hyper vigilant, exaggerated startle response. Somebody can walk in the room. You jump three feet in the air for no reason. You're in a perfectly safe place. Right. So we have... Re-experiencing, arousal, and then avoidance, the opposite of re-experiencing, which is don't want to talk about it, don't want to think about it, don't want to face it, don't want to be anywhere near where it happened, don't want any sensory and, you know, stimuli that reminds me of it. Uh So you move into a life very rigid and controlled or very chaotic, depending on what's happening for you in the moment. Either you're rigidly trying to control feeling safe and in control, or you're so overwhelmed by sensory stimulation and the dysregulation that happens in your brain and the anxiety that results, that it's all just chaos and you can't self-regulate at all. And living like that for years, you know, can really, it, it makes you completely dysfunctional. And PTSD actually is diagnosed four weeks after a trauma when all of these symptoms are present in varying degrees, there are different criteria, and when they start impacting your life in a, in a way that becomes dysfunctional. Because right after a trauma, anxiety is normal. And sure. acute stress is normal. Sure. As we, you know, seek to sort of move through and integrate all of the experience. But after that, if things don't subside and your survival mode doesn't shut off and your body and mind don't recalibrate, that's when we get stuck in a different place. Right. And and you were stuck in a different place for quite some time. Tell me about how post-traumatic stress disorder affected and impacted your life. Well, you're right. I went 24 years without being diagnosed. And <laughs> partly that was because in the early 80s, nobody was looking at what I was going through as something that would qualify for that. Partly, too, Shan, you know, with anxiety, it's embarrassing, You'd, or at least I was embarrassed. I didn't want anyone to think I was weak. 
I wanted to be courageous. And so I developed a sort of persona that I would hide the fact that I kept dreaming someone was trying to kill me. I would oh. hide the fact that I had these stupid little idiosyncrasies, like you read in Before the World Intruded. I had a time fetish because something had gone on in the hospital that was very time-oriented. And I could not, the minute it got dark out and it was going to be time for me to go to bed, I became very anxious about how long it would take to fall asleep and how long I would be lying in the dark all by myself. And so, you know, it got out of control. I had to turn all the clocks so I couldn't see them. And when that didn't work, I had to unplug all the clocks. I mean, you get a little weird. Right, (laughs) right. But you don't tell anybody that you're doing that. So years went by, and then, you know, 20% of the people with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, or I should say anorexia is comorbid with PTSD 20% of the time. So part of what we do is restrict our lives because – when you're dealing after trauma with enormous anxiety, the way to quell that is be in control. Make sure right, I'm right. And for me, part of that anxiety was I was trapped in a body that when I left the hospital, they told me, you have to make sure you never have this issue again. Because if you ever have this illness again, you will not survive. And I, that made a big impression on me. Now I'm stuck in a body that I can't control. I don't know what's going to trigger this allergy. I mean, obviously, I know that antibiotic, but what about other things? Ibuprofen can do this. Sure. You know, what other things are lurking out there that could kill me? And I'm stuck in a body that I can't predict and I can't control, and that was that was a very major problem for me. And what about trusting the doctors and the medical profession? Did that come <laughs> up for you? Oh, Sam, Yeah. Absolutely. If I had to, first of all, I was so terrified I wouldn't even take a Tylenol if I had a headache. I was terrified the Tylenol would kill me. Mm. And so, I mean, taking me to a doctor was not an easy thing because, you know, your brain, when you get anxious, it just shuts down, right? It gets, I don't know, it gets foggy. It doesn't work. You can't really talk the way that you would usually. You can't think. And with that kind of level of anxiety, the medical profession was a huge trigger for me. Mm. So it was not easy. And at that time, I had, you know, my, I was a kid, so my parents could talk, you know, and any appointment that I had, they were there. Sure. But later, you know, the mind is capable of producing 50% more stress than the body can handle. So at a certain point, if you live with chronic stress for too long, your body is going to let you know it's too much. Right. And that is what happened to me. I had liver, stomach, intestine, bone, muscle. It was just all kinds of problems with my body. That then as an adult, I had to be going to doctors all the time as they tried to figure out what was wrong. And to your point, Sam, I would start shaking so much in the doctor's office that he would go out to the waiting room and say, I cannot work with your daughter. What's the matter with her? (laughs) You know, she doesn't really talk and she's just shaking like crazy. So, yeah, it was a big issue. And actually, Sam, one of the ways I knew I had overcome PTSD was when I was able to be in a doctor's office for a crisis. I broke a bone. And I was chatting and talking and having a good time with the doctor while we were resetting this bone. And I, all of a sudden, I realized, holy cow, I'm at peace. Mm. I can communicate. I'm okay. Right. So... You know, it is possible to live at that high level of anxiety and then find a way through it to come out the other side, which doesn't always look possible when you're going through it, 
but when you look back, you say, wow, I did that. And you so did that. You did that. I'd love for you to share some of the story of how you overcame the situation and the post-traumatic stress and the anxiety that came along with it. You know, the whole experience was such a long road for you, and now you're on the other side of it. Amazingly, yes. Well, it took um, a lot of time denying and avoiding what was wrong, and then the medical issues that I referenced a few minutes ago really got to a point where I I was in melt, full meltdown mode, both emotionally and physically. They thought I had, well, they diagnosed me with celiac disease and mercury poisoning. They were shipping me off to the Mayo Clinic for a liver biopsy because they thought I had liver cancer. I mean, I was just a real mess, and it, and it was because of all the physical problems that I finally, I just had a meltdown and my mom said, you know what, I think you need help. You know, would you now accept some outside help? Hmm. Because over the years, my parents had been, not my dad really, my mom had been really <laughs> pretty forceful and I made an appointment for you to see an eating disorder specialist. And I would go because we would have this huge fight and she would demand it, but then you know, an eating disorder specialist would say to me, you have body image issues. And I'd say, no, I really don't. I don't care about this body. Well, it's still body image issues. But they never helped me. They right. labeled me but didn't help. So I had real resistance. Um, but after this meltdown, I said to my mom, you know, maybe you're right because I need somebody to help me figure out how to live like this, this mm -hmm. chronic patient, this chronic anxiety. And, and so I went into therapy finally, and it was a good thing that I did because my therapist taught me how to meditate, which immediately started to reduce my anxiety. I never thought that it would. <laughs> I thought it was, you know, the biggest hocus pocus, and I couldn't do it because, you know, we all go into meditation thinking, oh, I have to clear my mind, and I have to be still, and I have to be quiet, and I thought that's never going to happen. And I went back to my therapist and said, this is never going to happen, so we've got to figure out something else. And he made a tape for me to help me learn how to meditate. And I used that tape day after day until finally my brain learned this is how we do it, and it's really pretty easy. Mm, good so for that you. was neat because right away it started to reduce my anxiety, and I started to see, oh, I have a choice here. Because when we live with anxiety, we feel so powerless. It's in control more than I was ever in control. And once I started to realize, wow, there are things I can do, and I was way behind the curve on this, but in my defense, it was, you know, 15 years ago, and nobody was really talking about mindfulness and meditation sure, and sure. all that, as much as they are today. Um, and then from there, I moved into alternative trauma processes, like EMDR, people may be familiar with, it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and emotional freedom technique, and thought fear mm -hmm. therapy. I was basically, I became open to anything. I would try anything if somebody thought it would help me feel better and really resolve what I came to understand were trauma issues. And it was, you know, Shin, here's the sad thing. I was with my therapist on and off for eight years. He never mentioned PTSD to me. Wow. And I kept getting worse and worse and worse. We kept talking and talking and talking, and I would do these other alternative methods, and they got me functional and out of the bed, but I wasn't free. Right. And by the time the liver biopsy came up, I was a real mess. And I finally just recused myself from every medical thing, psychological or otherwise, and I said, I, something's got to shift 
uh, something's not right. You know, with all of the medical and psychological interventions, I'm getting worse instead of better. You know, what's happening there? Mm-hmm. And I started doing some research, and you know, by then Google was big. <laughs> Here are my search terms. I'm a mess, and you know, and I've had a trauma. And slowly, as I started to research what I had survived, which is I started there, and then that moved me into trauma research, and that moved me into dissociation research. And all of a sudden, you know, something started to make sense. I lived in such a dissociated state because the anxiety was just too much. I would just, you know, slip away. I would be someplace else. (laughs) Sure, sure. And and the dissociation research led me to PTSD. And I took a PTSD self-test, one of my favorite things. And we have one on the HealMyPTSD.com website. It's 22 questions based on the DSM-4 criteria. It will change a little bit now, I guess, because the new DSM-5 is out. But um, 22 questions, I answered positively to 20 of them. Wow. And I took this evidence to my my psychologist and I said, you know, I don't think I have PTSD because I don't have flashbacks every day. But what do you think of this test? (laughs) Because I didn't want the label of a mental illness. Right. And he looked at me and said, well, what is PTSD? Oh, my. And I thought, you know, I'm really on my own. And I write about this in the book that I just all of a sudden realized it was up to me. If I was going to overcome this, it really was going to have to be by my own self-direction. And I, you know, as you saw in Before the World Intruded, it was from that point on, I really got serious about educating myself, finding people who were really trained to help me. And then I got to a point where I decided I need more balance. Uh And you and I were talking earlier about dance because dance became my balance. I went on this joy quest to balance out the despair. Uh That was was only my, my real thought was I just need to feel something outside of this awful depression and this high anxiety. And I didn't even believe that that part of myself existed, this joyful self. But I thought, that's the only thing that's going to save me. I've got to go try to find it. And for me, that was dance. I knew when I get on a dance floor, I just feel free. And the funny thing now is, with all the advances in neuroplasticity, we know why this kind of thing works. (laughs) I just thought I was going to learn Argentine tango. But the actual scientific data of how taking in the good allows us to rewire the brain, of how possible it is to rewire the brain and how you can promote neuroplasticity by learning something new, Uh and how every time you do something that's novel or meaningful or a surprise, your brain perks up in ways that open your plasticity. So it makes sense that it works, but Getting in touch with that joyful self, even on days that I didn't feel joyful and dragging myself to a dance class every day wasn't always the easiest thing to do, but the benefit was always there because at the end of a class, I felt good. Uh And feeling good, as you know, releases dopamine, oxytocin, all the things that help your higher brain structures come back online and really start to regulate the lower brain structures that are producing all the anxiety in the first place. Right. 
So it was a long road, but ultimately had a very happy ending, as you know, because you got to the end of Before the World Intruded and saw what happened. (laughs) Well, and I love, on page 175, it starts out, and this just really made me so happy, is the more I dance, the less I care about the past. The more I dance, the more I feel joy. The more generous I become with myself, the more I live in the present, the more I let myself off the trauma hook. I mean, it's just, ugh. I can totally relate. It was so wonderful to get to that place and say, you know, she's she's done it. Yeah. Because for so long, you don't think you can. And you lose so much belief in yourself. And I, and for me, I don't, I don't know, you can tell me how this feels to you or what you've seen in other people. With anxiety, you really lose yourself. And you define yourself by your anxiety. And so it never occurred to me, well, for the longest time, it didn't occur to me that there was a definition of who I was outside of trauma and anxiety because it was so how I lived. Right. And so it was such a shock to realize, oh, my gosh, there's a joyful part of me that just has been asleep all this time. (laughs) And I just needed to, like, charm her like a snake in a basket with a little bit of salsa music. Right. And thank goodness (laughs) you did. Yeah, yeah, because it's not like dancing cured me. It gave me the balance that I needed. It allowed my brain to come back online. It opened up those neuroplastic change opportunities, and it gave me the courage and the belief and the connection to myself to go back and do the rest of the trauma work that was required. Right. And and so it was really a conduit for me to be able to brave out the rest of what I needed to face. What was the most difficult aspect of what you, the rest of what you needed to face with the work that you were doing around eliminating the trauma? That's a really good question. I think there there were a couple of things. Um, Number one, I felt so disconnected from myself, and that had a lot to do with that I'd had an out-of-body experience during my trauma and had such a day of enormous pain and so debilitated and so weak, maybe like 10 days into my hospital stay, that when I felt myself leaving my body and there was a tunnel at the top of the seat, you know, up in a corner of the ceiling and it was ringed by white light and it was like a magnet pulling me in there and I thought, oh, thank God I'm dying. This is great. You know, I can't handle this. And that moment, you know, my mom pulled me back, but that moment really loomed over me the disconnection between my body and myself, myself and myself, and and an inability to, to sort of pull it all back together was a big problem for me. So that was one thing. And another thing was I had just grown so used to living in fear. I was sure. just constantly afraid, what's going to happen to me? And am I going to be able to survive the next thing? That was really the thing that drove me all the time. It's what drove my eating disorder. It's what drove all my self-destructive behaviors. I was constantly testing, can I survive? If I totally, you know, take away all food and don't let my body have anything, how long will it survive? Mm -hmm. How long can I think? How long can I act? So I really had to, number one, forgive myself for all the years that I'd lived like that and for the, you know, I came to see that moment of leaving my body as a moment of enormous weakness. And I did not, what's the word I'm looking for? I I didn't respect or honor myself in that moment. 
And I felt that it exposed a, a weakness in the core of who I was because I didn't want to survive. I didn't struggle to live. And I was willing to disappoint everybody around me. <laughs> you know, right. my parents were at my bedside. And, and so it felt to me like a big flaw in my character. And I had to forgive myself and understand that in that moment, your mind and your body do things necessary for your survival. And sometimes leaving your body is necessary. Wow, absolutely. And you were a little girl. Yeah, I know I had high standards for myself, Sam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wow, and your boy, your mom, her personality sure shined through. What a uh, incredibly strong woman, and uh, the perfect person to have by your side. It seemed she was. Well, both of my parents, and the whole first part, the, the first part of the book is about the trauma, and then it moves into PTSD, and then the whole last part is really predominantly the book is about healing and recovery. Sure. And my mom was so strong in the hospital, and then really challenged me to be that strong as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a big problem for me too, Shan. I really worried for a long time, and this caused a lot of discord in my relationship with my mom. What if the reason I survived was her strength? What if it wasn't mine? And how will I ever survive again if she's not around? But you can't, like, follow your mom around all day right you know? right exactly <laughs> the mom bubble yeah exactly so you have to sort of reclaim your own identity and what is that if you're only defining yourself as a survivor then that that's dangerous mm -hmm. and that is what i did for a long time i'm a survivor i am sure. dangerous my body is dangerous the world is dangerous sure. you know scientifically we have a negativity bias and I just let my negativity bias have a party in my head for you know 25 years <laughs> well and uh, speaking of parties when I got to the section of the book when you were talking about how you normally didn't like to celebrate your birthday um, mm -hmm. but um, you, you came together I believe um, well it doesn't matter what year it was um, I, I don't remember yeah but, I, was, I turned 40 okay so it was your 40th birthday and and your father wanted to say a few words about you that he was certain most people in the room would not know you know right. anything about you and it brought me to tears it was such a moving uh, moving part of before the world intruded and and to be just to be all loved up the way that you were and to be able to look at that and how blessed and, and how grateful you must feel now and I'm sure then too to have so much love and support Oh, absolutely. I think that um, when we're trying to do something difficult, we are really all alone in that struggle. But having around you people who believe in you, people who think you can do it, people who are willing to support you while you're trying to do whatever difficult thing it is, really makes an enormous difference. All those years that I pushed my mom away, because the only way to know that I could survive on my own was making sure she was nowhere near me, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, you know, is not, not exactly the right way to look at it, but the only way that my muddled brain could sort of formulate a plan. Sure. Um, all those years, even when I pushed her away, I knew if there was a disaster, I could count on her and my dad. And, and, and I frequently did count on them because I would push them away and then have some kind of meltdown and call from college and say, you need to come get me on the mess. <laughs> you know, or I'd sure. end up in the hospital with some big, you know, some illness. 
and call for wherever I was, you need to come get me, something's really gone wrong. <laughs> so I think it's important to know you're not alone. And, and having that support is amazing, and it's not easy for the caregivers. It is really hard because they take everything personally. So when someone pushes you away, you feel it. It hurts. Sure, sure. And you don't always know from the other, you, know, you can't always see from the other side, this person's anxiety is in control of them. It's not them. And I think the beauty of the book and, and my family even is that my parents and my brother never gave up on me. Even at my worst. Right. They stuck they with you. They never gave up on me. Yeah, they stuck with me. You're right. There's just nothing like a strong, loving, supportive family, no matter no matter what kind of hot mess we become, no matter what we're facing. <laughs> you know, really, yeah. when you can come back and, and the forgiveness piece is huge, of course. I mean, wrapping your brain, your heart, your, your world around all of this, and then to be able to come around and come on the other side and and say, I'm anxiety-free. I've beat this. Yeah. So tell me about your life now, now that you are anxiety-free. Oh, my life now is so much better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was a funny moment in my recovery. I ended up, you know, using all these alternative modalities, and the last one that I used that actually brought me to freedom was hypnosis. And I remember Mm -hmm. the the days following my first hypnosis session, I woke up each morning, I didn't have a nightmare, and I slept through the night, like eight straight hours, when I'd been sleeping two hours a night for years, was an enormous difference to me. And I felt so at peace every morning when I woke up, and I realize now that's really how most people wake up in the morning. (laughs) But for (laughs) me, it it was a real revelation, and it was so uncomfortable, Shan, letting go of the anxiety was what I wanted, but feeling the lack of it was very awkward and unfamiliar and I called my hypnotherapist and I said something's gone really wrong and she said what what is it tell me and I said well I just feel so at peace (laughs) and she laughed and she said well isn't that what you wanted and you know what's wrong with that and I said well all of this peace is making me anxious sure because you know when we lose something that feels like it's been with us for a long time it, it can make you feel like something's wrong But that was the beginning of getting to where I am today, where I am totally anxiety-free. I've been in some very serious medical issues over the past couple of years between, you know, broken bone and a breast cancer scare and all this. And the fact is I really am okay. I really can be in triggering situations and I'm perfectly fine. Which doesn't mean I have no emotion. You know, when, when a doctor's telling you you have a category four or something and you need to, you know, have a biopsy, you're not like, oh, yeah, that sounds fabulous. I'm totally functional. I'm cognizant. I'm aware. I'm calm. And so you get a chance over the years to see, because the first year, Sam, I didn't really trust that I was done. I believe that. I that. Really, I'm sure you didn't. Yeah. So I think it takes time when you make changes about or around the idea of anxiety. It takes time to realize, yeah, these changes are, they're done. They're solid. They stick. And, and even now I've been, you know, working as a post-trauma coach for quite some time. And, and I, my clients go through the same thing. That first year out is so tenuous. And then you really start to believe in yourself. And from there, you know, Before the World Intruded was my book about, trauma and how it changes us and how we overcome it and that came out last year and 
you know, I've got a radio show on which I interview all the top experts and minds in trauma recovery and also personal change. And so I really started, I wanted to give back. After I came out of my recovery, I thought, I have all this information now. I should do something good with it. And that was how the HealMyPTSD.com website was born, was just me Mm. wanting to educate people because that's what I'd been missing. If anybody in 1981 (laughs) had said to me, look, if you start having nightmares, you need to tell somebody because it's normal. That's the thing. We think we're all so abnormal in what happens and the changes. But we're really, I love the Viktor Frankl quote that, um, I'll paraphrase it because I don't want to not get it right, but it's all about when you go through an abnormal experience and you have an abnormal reaction, that's really normal. Right. And giving ourselves the space to have that experience, no matter how much anxiety it produces, and then coming back and finding a way to reclaim. So now I still dance four nights a week. As you know from, you know, the happy ending at, and before the world intruded, dance changed my life personally and professionally. Sure. So I started teaching and performing and loving, and it's been a great conduit. And now I know you're belly dancing, mm. and I'm country line dancing. That's my new thing. <laughs> right on. Right <laughs> I am on. embarrassed to admit, as a New York City girl, that I've gone country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm having said it's really all about what makes you feel joy, what makes you feel a sense of play, what makes you feel free. Even if we don't hold on to those moments every single second, that to me is where we start to take back control from anxiety because it's retraining your brain. There's something else outside of that uncomfortable feeling. And your brain, and most importantly, your amygdala, which is where all of you know, your threat system is, it tunes into the dominant experiences. So the more good experiences you give it, the more it's going to start looking for those. And it starts looking less for the things that cause threat and danger and ultimately anxiety. So you asked about my life now. I've got this fantastic family, this fantastic job that I love where I speak a lot to help educate people and help people overcome this. I live by the beach. And I dance. So what Mm. more could a girl want? (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that this story has a a happy, well, it's not an ending, a happy mid-chapter because there's so much more that you're you're up to. I just know it. And I, I look forward to reading your next book, which is Your Life After Trauma, Powerful Practices to Reclaim Your Identity. That's going to be fabulous. And I love that you have a free download for anybody listening at HealMyPTSD.com. And that special report is called 15 Things No One Tells You About PTSD That You Really Want to Know. That's fabulous. So anybody listening, head on over to HealMyPTSD.com. And then we'll have a lot of information for you on the Anxiety Slayer website as well so that you can learn just as much as you'd like to about Michelle and her work and what she's up to. And why I just, this time has just flown by. I'm so grateful that you did make time for Anxiety Slayer and to share with us. And and is there anything that you have that you'd like to leave us with today? You know, thank you so much for asking because I would like to just double back for a second My radio show, which is called Changing Direction, is all about how to overcome life's obstacles, anxiety, PTSD, 
any kind of setback and how we create the change we choose. And all of those episodes going back for the past two years are all available for free. So if you're if your audience is looking for, well, how do I start controlling my thoughts or how do I start reclaiming my identity or how do I, you know, reduce stress? And there's a slew of different episodes about that. Mm-hmm. They're all at changeyouchoose.com. Sure that we, that we share that on the site as well. So changeyouchoose.com. Yes. Mm, Thank so, you, Sam, so, so much for your time today. This is so uh, much fun. It is so much fun. It was a pleasure to share time with you. I feel like we've um, walked along the beach together, and, and uh, I'm just grateful that our energies crossed and, and that we get to share your story with uh, even more people listening, and I look forward to staying in touch. Definitely. We're buds now, Sam. <laughs> so, <laughs> we just need to find other things to do together. I'm so, I love meeting people with your energy. Anxiety is a serious topic, but we don't always have to be serious in the way that we approach it. Absolutely. And I think that the creativity and the energy that you have and, and your work is so good for everybody to recognize. I, you know, we can let out a little, my mom always says, let out your canvas. You know, right let on. the wind pick up your sail. And and I, I love that that is so inherent in your whole approach. Oh, thank you, Michelle. Again, such a pleasure to interview and share time with Michelle Rosenthal. You can find out more about Michelle at changeyouchoose.com or at healmyptsd.com. Mm-hmm. 